My name is Simon Howarth. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You've got to get into, out the game what you've got into, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today, we're talking to Simon Howarth. Okay, yeah, I'm Simon Howarth, ex professional footballer and now current manager of Staley Bridge Celtic in the NPL. As usual, I'm joined by Ryan and Ant, the two chaps. How the devil are we this morning? Ryan, you're looking fresh as a daisy. <laughs> yeah, I've been up early because uh, Rach was in work early. So, do you know what? I'm rubbish at getting out of bed. Like, terrible at it. But do you know when people say, oh, get up early, start your day, right? It does actually work. I, I like it. Especially in this uh, fine spring weather we're experiencing. So, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, I'm in a good mood. Apart from turning up late to the group tracks, I was on the I was on the wrong link. <laughs> I'm feeling good. That's okay, mate. We'll forgive you because you're pretty, and that's how the world works. <laughs> and how are you, mate? I'm good. Yeah. Um, it's quite dark where you're sitting. Well, it's quite bright behind me. Yeah, um, I was going to so say. Gone. You look a little bit like a hostage. I feel like we need to get Lance on uh, the call to, to rescue you. <laughs> Rescue me. Is that TLC? Oh, no, it's not. Um, anyway, no, yeah, I'm feeling good. Feeling great. Fantastic. Uh, I was up early this morning as well, but I'm quite well trained in that at the moment. Yeah. With a little three-year-old running around the house. Well, that's nice, mate. That's always nice to hear. I didn't get up early. I just got up in time for the call. Um, <laughs> I fell asleep on the couch and woke up at 4 a.m. Um, and then... I don't think I kind of realised what was going on. I still had like about a third of the beer that I'd been drinking next to me and I just took a mouthful of it and I was like, ugh, that's horrible because I've been asleep for like three hours. It's just really unpleasant to kind of experience that at 4am. But anyway, moving on <laughs> moving on with that. <laughs> it sounded like I was. it was a bit of an intervention for me then. Anyway, moving on. We've got a Simon Howarth on the uh, on the podcast today on the on the show. And if you do enjoy this episode or you've enjoyed any of the others that we've brought you, we would muchos appreciate you heading over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, giving us a little five star review, dropping us a comment so we can help reach new listeners. So let's move on to Simon Howarth. Simon is a, a proud Welshman and was a superb footballer. So, for our opening question today, chaps, Ryan and Ant, what I want to know from you is, who is your favourite Welsh footballer? And Ryan, I'm going to come to you first, my friend. I think the obvious answer is Gareth Bale, simply because he was one of the best players in the world for a number of years, and he's just really exciting to watch the goals he scored, the way he beat players, Champions League final goals. Um, so, yeah, it, it it is Bale, but from a personal point of view, we had a left-back for many years called Gareth Robert. Uh, he was there for the good times, he was there for the bad times, but he was always solid and consistent and good to watch and attack and full-back. 
and I, I saw a lot of him and he did manage to get a couple of caps for Wales, I think, three or four maybe. So, yeah, completely different level to Gareth Bale, one of my favourite Welshmen down the years. Another Gareth, another notable Gareth. He was lovely, Gareth Roberts. I remember when he moved to Doncaster and he came back to play the next season and it was the first time I remember seeing like a player who'd, like that I just quintessentially thought of as a Tranmere player not wearing a Tranmere kit and it looking really weird and just yeah. being weirded out by the whole experience. Um, I don't know what it's, that says about me, but it's quite sad though. To be fair, he was really, he was really good. He's back at the club now though, and he's working, working with the youth team. I think, um, and they're doing really, really well. So yeah, superb. Yeah. And who's your favourite Welsh footballer? Hey, do you know what? Right, I, I, I could have gone down the Jason Kumas route. That's um, that's one of the names I wrote down. But yeah. but I, I, I'm not going to because I don't, I don't really think of him as a as a Welsh footballer. I'm going for Craig Bellamy. Oh yeah, Bellas. He was. There was a period where he signed for Blackburn, I think, and he was phenomenal. He was so quick, and he just belted goals in. And then obviously he went to he go to Liverpool after that, and mm. he get all that stuff, the golf club and stuff. I mean, that's just it's character. He goes and scores in the in the new camp, does a golf club celebration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I he was box office, wasn't he? He was box office, yeah. Craig Bellamy. And he, yeah. he did it for a number of years as well, didn't he? I remember he. he kind of tore apart Rio Ferdinand for, for Man City um, in what was one of the best derby games they've had for, for years as well and he, he was um, he was just a character he just did everything he was he went to about 20 different clubs and he was one of those everywhere. players where you knew something was going to happen when he was playing because yeah. he was he left, just... his, he left his mark on every club as well yeah uh, he was quality so, so it's interesting that you mentioned Bellamy because I mean Simon will touch on it in, in today's episode but he and, and Craig were grew up together on I think on the same estate. Um they were they were big pals. Um but yeah no he, he was fantastic Craig Bellman. He was just so game. He was just always game for it. He was always game for it. Ryan your hand is up. What's up mate? Yeah I, I forgot a huge part of why I picked Garth Roberts, which is I think he's Simon Harp's assistant manager now at Staley Bridge. Oh is it? I just completely left that out despite doing a little bit of research beforehand and I thought I'd better put my hand up. Yeah, Kumas was one of the names I wrote down. Um, oh, Neville, wow. Neville Southall was another one. Our previous guest, Neville Southall. Um, but I went for John Harton because he was he was he's a massive fella, absolute brute of a fella. And then there was the whole thing where he did he have testicular cancer? Is that right? Yes. And 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 that was that that was all very uh, emotional um and he and he came out of that really well he, he kind of was very vocal about that which was which was you know nice to see um but the biggest thing with john arson he's an enormous bloke the softest welsh accent ever he's just so softly spoken and like just an enormous dude it's like a massive big bruising center forward with the softest voice you've ever heard <laughs> just such a funny contrast um but yeah john arton just that seems like a nice fella love to give him a big hug but you know, it'd just be dead nice just feel that safe um but yeah there you go so let's get on with with simon howarth as as usual do you want to tell the listeners ryan why we wanted to speak to simon howarth and and how the interview came about yeah absolutely so for us personally, he's a brilliant player for, for Tramia, but from the, the podcast point of view, he was a perfect person to speak to. He, 
been through a lot. He lost a loved one. He had a career-ending injury. He's now gone into management. Just a lot of experience and wisdom to share, really, from a football point of view, but also from a, from a life point of view and how, how you can show personal resilience in difficult times. Uh, we reached out to Simon, uh, slipped into his DMs, as we often do with a lot of the people we have on the show, and uh, thankfully he got back to us and agreed to come on. So, yeah, really grateful to, to spend that time that evening. So I think it was a Friday night. Spent a couple of hours uh, chatting to him. So, yeah, it was lovely. Superb. Yeah, we do love sliding into DMs. Absolute wrong ones, a lot of us. And do you want to tell the listeners what uh, what today's theme is? Uh, yeah, sure. Just been outed as a wrong one. Oh, dear. Um, I, I certainly haven't outed you. You were already known as a wrong one until now. Right. Less of that. Right. Okay. So today's theme is recovering from injury physically and mentally. Obviously, it's a big part of the interview that, that you're going to hear. It's it was a it was a shock it was a shocking injury, um, and it's one that obviously kind of put an end to to Simon's career, which was a, a brilliant career. If I, I'm I don't think I'm yeah. wrong in saying that some of the goals he scored were fantastic. I think there's a there's one we mentioned at Wembley for Wigan, which is just I mean you'd pay fifty million quid for that alone today. It was gorgeous, wasn't it? It's a gorgeous <laughs> goal. That it was. It was just absolutely filthy. Um, we'll get a clip of that and stick it on the Twitter because yeah. it's just dynamite. You need to watch it. It's so good. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a great interview as well. He's a really nice guy. And again, you know, when you're talking about being softly spoken, Simon's very softly spoken, very approachable. And yeah, you can you can see why he's doing he's doing well in management. And um, yeah, kind of similar to John Macken as well, who, who's gone down that route of management at I think yes. a similar level. So, yeah, doing really well and just nice to talk to him. It was. It was a very enjoyable Friday evening. I remember kicking back and listening to a, to when you boys were doing your part and it was just a thoroughly enjoyable experience. I think I was eating Chinese whilst I was listening to you. So that was a, that was enjoyable. A few chicken wings and I was, yeah. Don't know why I needed to tell you that, but I thought I would. Let's move on and get to Simon's interview. We'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. Obviously, the, the podcast itself is about mental health and mental health within football. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us, Simon? I just think it's really important that we, you know, we're all aware of this and we're able to talk. And I don't think just in football, but in society in general. And, you know, through my career, there's been lots of challenging times mentally. And I know how tough it can get after football with finishing and different things. So I think it's important we talk. I know that's a a common saying we use now, but I don't think we can talk enough about it. And um, like I said, if if me talking about it helps somebody else, then then great. Um, but I do think it's a it's a society issue in general that we all need to talk a bit more. Yeah, completely agree, Simon. Completely agree. And and just on behalf of of, of all of us, I just want to say thanks for your time this evening, mate. It, it means a lot for you to to come on and give us give us no yeah. problem at all. No problem at all. Anytime. Um. So you, you began your career as a, a youth player at Cardiff back in the nineties. What was it like being at such a big club as a youth player? I mean, it was t- Cardiff was a big club. It always has been as the capital city. But going back to when I was a, well, we called it the YTS, then apprentice, whatever you want to use. Um, we were we were in the League Two, which is now League Two. I think it might have been Division Three or whatever it was branded as then, and it was struggling. Poor ownership, you know, not great times and things like that. So, as a kid coming through, there were there were always. 
other options to go to go afar, but I, I was keen to stay at home and come home every night. And you know, I was a family boy, and I, I did think I'd get an opportunity if I was good enough. Um, and and back then at Cardiff, you you were given an opportunity. We brought through some some good young players. So um, big club, like you said, in stature, it was always I hate to use the term sleeping giant, but it, it probably was. Um, but back when I was there, times times weren't great really uh, in the division we were in. And you you said before, Simon, that you were obviously a, a Cardiff supporter. What was that like playing for the you know the team that you'd grown up supporting? Brilliant. You know, I used to go down as a kid and think to stand on the the Bob Bank and the Grange End and all that kind of stuff and the, the Cardiff Swansea games and all the rivalry of that. But as I said, there wasn't much success growing up. I think just before me, there was a, there was a promotion and Welsh Cup wins and Welsh Cup runs were pretty good. Um, the, the benefit of that was getting to Europe and seeing games like Standard Liège and you know some games like that. So it was good supporting Cardiff. It was a bit, a bit of a cult thing, you know. They were they were renowned for being quite. Um, what should we say? <laughs> Aggressive supporters and you know <laughs> passionate, passionate fans. And as a kid, fourteen, fifteen, you love standing amongst that and feeling part of something. So um, it was great when I had the opportunity to join Cardiff. And you know, but if I'm honest, the biggest part was I, I wanted to stay home and around me home and around my parents. And I felt I needed that at that stage to, to give myself every chance of, of, of making it. And you obviously managed to break into the first team during the the 95-96 season. What was the transition like to, to first-team football for you? It was tough. I mean, a youth team, I mean, I st- in my first year as a, as a YTS, I, I broke my ankle, missed most of that, came back in the second year and, and scored a lot of goals and we, we had success down in the in the Southwest leagues that we were in the youth team and, and did well. I mean, it was a small squad, so we got quite a bit of um, involvement with the first team. So it wasn't a, a huge surprise to be in and around the first team players, but the the standard was tough. And I think back then you were so anxious to make your mark. You know, back in the mid nineties, we we were all sat on six month and twelve month deals on not a lot of money, and and we knew the importance of being given a chance. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the anxiety and nerves and desire to do well and grab your opportunity was. We we weren't sat on two three year deals, knowing that the chance would come. We we had to take it, and I, f- I felt. I felt that a lot, you know, the, the need to, to go in and grab the opportunity and not miss my chance. And um, I found that as tough as the standard, if anything. So as a young a, 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 a young lad at that time and, and in that environment, as you say, kind mm. of the anxiety of worrying about, you know, getting your chance and taking it and that sort of thing. Was that the type of thing that you would vocalise or was that kind of an internal battle? Oh, internal, yeah. I mean, I played in in an era where you you wouldn't show anything. You, you had to be a man's man, kind of thing. It was it was it was a tough time. I mean, I don't regret it. It was what it was, and it's made me and shaped me into into the man I am, I guess. But things were tough then. You didn't show any weakness, and you had to show that you were able to go and do that. But most definitely an internal thing. And I don't think we were even confident enough to speak to parents or anyone then. It was just it was just your worries, you know, on the way to a game. I might have been back that age. You know, getting a lift in off my dad, or however I got there, it'd just been that sat in silence, that that inside you that you've got to take that opportunity and and don't mess up, really. So the 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 night before your obviously the first game, do you know that you're in the in the team for the next day? I mean, I, I can't remember. It was it, at times they would tell you. I don't I don't think I was told then. No, I think it was pretty much announced on the night. Like I said, I. I'm not saying there was a right or wrong then, but as young players then you were, 
you were sort of bottom of the food chain with everything in terms of, you know, preparation, what you were being told. Sometimes you get thrown in late. So it was just trying to be ready and, like I said, do the best you can. But um, I wouldn't even remember off the top of my head. I, I would hope it was the day of the game because I'd have probably been worse if I was told <laughs> the day before. But there didn't seem to be the depth of planning back then. It was about getting players fit and, you know, together. It was, it was more team spirit, really, than... Than, than long coaching sessions that you see now and analysis and things that just wasn't around. And that season that you that you made your, de- your debut, did Cardiff got relegated that year, is that right? No, we didn't get relegated when I was there. So that would, I mean, I came in, I'm trying to think, the, the year I played, I came through as a first-year pro, played a few games, but I got a, quite a serious knee injury during that um, season. So I probably got, top of my head, 10, 12 games maybe off the bench and bits and pieces of games and then I got injured and then in my second year pro, um, which was which again was a difficult time. I was out for a long time in that ten months. I I lost my dad around then and things, and I was I was anxious about getting a new deal. Um, and I think I got another one on pittance of a money, which is what it was then. Um, and then that was the year I broke through really. Um, but I I think if we've both got it right, the debut for Cardiff I'd have been I'd have been a couple of games maybe. But no, we didn't. We didn't go down off that. We were in. We were in League Two, I think, which would have been the old Division Three. Yeah, that's right. I'm just. I'm just looking at the at the table at the moment. It it must have been. Yeah, twenty. It might have been just before that because, like I said, there was a promotion when I was supporting Cardiff, and then we fell back into that division. So, I, I probably watched them as a fan go up and go back down, and then and then as a player and, and a YTS, I was, I was in and around that. So what was it like? What was the the kind of dressing room environment like that you were coming into then as a as, as a young young footballer? Intimidating, uh, I suppose. But we did, you know, again, we didn't know any difference. I mean, even even as apprentices, life was tough. We were, we were always getting a hard time. We were we were seven days a week working more or less for I think it was twenty seven quid or whatever it was. Um, and the first team was that it was the holy grail, but it was it was tough. You had to earn your stripes in there, and you got you got a tough time with senior pros and. Um, I mean, we knew them players. We'd been cleaning their boots and been in around them and trained and played practice matches. But there was still that there was still that divide between sort of young players and old players. And like I said, you'd you'd, you'd come in and you know you were the young player in there with with everything you did from from the chores and getting the blame for defeats and things. You, you were a young player and it was, it was sink or swim really. And you you obviously you, you as you say that you made your debut and you you started settling and made quite a big impression you know being a young lad and, and, and fans like that particularly at Cardiff as you say but it's very kind of um I think what the word would be <laughs> you know very tribalistic isn't it in, in, in yeah, that it is, yeah. good word yeah <laughs> trying to be yeah. diplomatic as best as possible no you, you found a better word than I did yeah <laughs> um and in and in May of 97 you were given a, a full international debut for for Wales what was what was that like yeah, I mean, I, the first, like I said, the first season was the debut and then I missed, again, it's off the top of my head a bit, I missed about 10 months out of a bad knee injury, um, came back and like I said, then that coincided with me losing my dad at 18, who was pretty much, you know, my big influence. Um, so it was a testing time from all of that and I, I came back into the first team and there was a bit of an injury crisis and I think Russell Osman and Kenny Hibbert were joint managers, which um, was a strange one, but that was kind of how it worked. But I remember Russell Osman saying, you've got 10 games, and no matter what you do, you've got the 10 games. And that was a big thing for me as a kid. Um, and it's in that 10 games I came and came in, did well, scored some goals, and we we sort of 
we grew from there as a team and got in the playoffs that season. And I think that's where some of the international recognition came along and things then, um, which was massive, hugely proud Welshman. And my dad, my dad was the same. And, you know, he, he was Welsh through and through in anything from rugby to football, anything. So it was, it was ingrained in me and always had huge, huge pride in, in, in playing for Wales at any age. Yeah, we obviously hear some some stories about players who get that 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 phone call for getting an international call up, and maybe thinking it was a it was a wind up or not sure how to take it. What how how did that come about for you? Was did you get a phone call from from someone at the at the FA or how did that work? It was always a letter to the club, a letter to the club, and a, and a copy to the home, and it was always by letter, unless you were a late call up, but you'd have had the letter to be on a on a you know a standby list as such. So, I mean, I played a lot of under twenty one football, so there was a good crossover there. We we travelled and trained and stayed in the same hotel as the first team, so there was always a a good feeling with that. It wasn't as big a jump, um, how can I say it on on a on a personal level. The standard was a big jump up, obviously, but we were in and around them players and in and around the managers and staff and things. So more often than not, I was in the 21s uh, squads and if there was an injury or two, I'd get called up. I think initially that's how I used to work, that I was I was one of the you know, more important players in the 21s, if I can say that. And and um, one or two of us, I think me, Craig Bellamy, John Oster, people like that were always, always then getting called up into the first team squad during that week. Um, that's tend that tended to be how it happened. And there were some big characters in that in that team at the time. What was, I mean, what was that first training session like? Was it was it easy to settle in amongst, as you said, the likes of, you know, Craig Bellamy, Giggs, uh, John Hart, and Gary Speed? What what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I I grew up on the council estate next to to Bella's, like, so I've known him since a kid and. He was, you know, he was, he was a pain in the ass when he was eight and nine. He's the, he's the same kid he's always been, kind of thing. So I've known, I've known him a long time, and um, there were some big characters. It was, it was a strange time though because Bobby Gould was in charge, and it was just, it was just crazy with with Bobby Gould in charge. And I don't want to take anything away from him. He gave me my sort of senior caps and chances. And as a young kid, I kept my head down and stayed out of that. But some of the things you were seeing, you know, amongst sort of senior players and him and. You know, which was, was just bizarre for international football, really. So, I think that was the that was the toughest challenge, and just seeing that dream moment of being coming into the first team, and playing for Wales, and some of the shenanigans that were going in and around Bobby. Really, did you ever um, did you ever play golf with Craig Bellamy? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, um, <laughs> listen, like I said, he, he moved to Norwich, Craig, as a kid, and. I chose to stay at Cardiff. I'm, I think I'm a year or two older than him, but we played sort of under 18s and the 21s and shared lifts from from that side of Cardiff where we grew up. And like I said, just we were just two council estate kids off rival teams, and I've known him a long time. And he, he's no different. He's just that kid. He, he, he needs to be like that to, to reach his best. And I've got respect for him. You know, a huge respect for him to get to the very top. He had some setbacks with injuries and different things. And He's annoying, but deep down he's a, he's a decent kid and he worked extremely hard. So, um, but no, stayed away from golf. <laughs> Probably a tenth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I've always I've always liked Craig Bellamy. I must admit, he's always been one of those players that I've always enjoyed. Yeah. Oh, I just uh, sorry, I, was say, I did save him from getting his head kicked in once in on, on a Wales trip that I remember. Um, that I think he mentions in his book where, we, like I said, we'd get called up, and I think it was me him again. It might have been John Austin. It was a, it was a summer tour to Malta and Tunisia. And um, again, it should have been a massive thing, and it was just one big sort of booze up. It was a bit of a shambles. I think I think Tunisia 
I think Tunisia beat us 4 0 or something. And you can imagine, you know, players <laughs> like Chris Coleman and Gary Speed losing in that. But we were out at night and Bellas was having a bit of um bit of a clash with some Cardiff fans because he chose to go to Norwich and you know, was a Cardiff boy and things and had to grab him from getting his head kicked in and throw him in a taxi, and that was quite a regular occurrence with <laughs> with, with Bella's life. <laughs> I can I can fully so, imagine. He's always he's always been that player though that you, if he's playing, you know that something's going to happen, and they get like he's always good value when you. Yeah, yeah. He, pl- he played on the edge, and he needed to. That, yeah. that was him. He had, he had to play on the edge, and that's what brought the best out in him. When you were um, when you were playing for Wales, you you started in a match against Brazil. Um, I've just. I'm looking at looking at some of the players in the line yeah. of Brazil. I mean, Taffarelli, Gold, Cafu, Zebraverto, Rivaldo. Uh, I mean, some names there. What was that like? That was just unreal, to be honest. I mean, that was a that was a call up. I think a few people had pulled out. It was it was away in Brasilia. Um, I was at Coventry at the time. Then um, I'd be doing okay at Coventry. I'd worked hard and got in the sort of squad. And that was when you know Coventry were a good Premier League team I think they'd always sort of flirted with relegation but a couple of years I'd had there they were they were they done well they had a good side Dion was up front with Huckabee and Gary McAllister and people it was a good side and I'd been in and around that so I got I got the call up um I was in a room with Johnny Oster who was at Everton at the time and um we both got the start and I mean you couldn't pick a better start could you you know that that could have been <laughs> my career there and over with in that so um huge huge experience it was brilliant um massive honor and just unbelievable to play against them players, really. And um, we did, you know, I, I thought I did okay and enjoyed it and just something I'll never forget. But yeah, they, they, they had some team and it was some experience, yeah. Just to uh, touch on your time at Coventry then, um, there were some big characters at the club, wasn't there? Gary Breen, Huckabee, mm. uh, Dion Dublin, I think Michael O'Neill. Quite a lot of them actually ended up becoming managers as well. As, as a young man, what was it like going into that dressing room at the time? That was really tough, you know. I moved away from home at a young age, and like I said, you know, I'd come off a sort of bad injury. I'd lost me dad, who was it was a big figure for me, and I think I'd scored ten or eleven goals in twenty games for Cardiff, and I was sold. Um, I went, I went to Norwich, and that fell through um, with on a medical from the knee injury that I'd had. So went through quite a bit before I got to Coventry, and then when I did get there, you know, it was just a complete eye opener. We had, you know. Gordon Strachan was a brilliant manager, brilliant coach, but he was he was he was a taskmaster, you know, and it was it was, it was an eye opener for me and some big big characters in there, and I would arguably one of Coventry's best teams probably that they that they were competing mid mid division in the Premier League back then, and some outstanding players, and the big the big thing for me was just the standard of the football, you know, it was, it was tough and a tough time, but a great experience, and and um, as you said, played with some with some real good players in there. Yeah, I, I didn't realise um, you lost your dad so young, Simon. Was that must have been really hard to be dealing with that on the side, and then have to go and match the the standards and the work rates expected from being at a Premier League club? Yeah, it was, and I, I probably never sort of dealt with it. You know, um, that's that's the beauty of things like this and what we're talking about. And young lads going through this, hopefully, can find people to talk to. I, I went through that. You know, with me mum and two sisters, and and that was it. And I was the man of the family, and I had to organise, you know, funeral arrangements and all this thing. And I think I was eighteen, nineteen years of age, so it was tough. And like like most lads, you know, you and your old man, that that's football, isn't it? He he's your man, really. Um, so he what he was my sort of mentor, the guy I looked up to, and and then I had to move away to a to a different city on my own and find my feet and buy a house and all these kind of things. So 
it, it was tough and I, and I think you know I, I put a lot of that down to why I, I couldn't continue um, my level of form there it wasn't it wasn't sort of ability I worked really really hard to get in and around the first team and you know Gordon Strachan would tell you I was I was capable of, of being in amongst that and you know spoke very well of me Gordon Strachan and the people there and other players but I just struggled with it mentally it was just the demands of it and, and being on my own I found too much yeah, I can imagine and moving away from your mother mm. at that age when you probably felt like she needed you. It must have been extremely hard. Was th- was there any pressure from Cardiff to receive the money? With because I don't think they had a lot of money at the time, did they? Yeah, I was going no matter what. You know, it was in an ideal world coming off the injury and, and where I was at, obviously with things at, at home. And I, like I said, I played about twenty games that season, scored ten or eleven, and. I was really looking forward to a little pay rise and another season at Cardiff yeah. and just being able to find my feet as a as a nineteen year old kid. But um, they they there was no way they weren't having it. And I think, you know, I think I was lucky really. They they sold they agreed to deal with Coventry City, and Norwich City came in after that and offered I think seven fifty or something. Um, and Cardiff completely sort of screwed Coventry over in that and sent me to Norwich packing. Um, and they failed me on an MRI scan on the recent knee operation. Luckily for me, Gordon Strachan sort of took the higher ground and liked me as a player and, and, and realised I had nothing to do with what was going on with, with the, you know, the skullduggery and, and took me there. I passed the medical there and gave me a chance. So um, that, was, that was a great opportunity, but it was probably too much too soon for me to deal with. And another year at Cardiff or two would, would have done me the world of good, um, like you said, but Cardiff was skint. We, we had some owners, I think, the Kumar brothers who were involved in Birmingham for a while and uh, influenced clothing and all that was their business, but they were desperate to sell any young kid there that was worth anything. Yeah, um, and, and when you are at Coventry, you moved to Wigan, I think, was it after a season or so? Was there not any reason why Coventry didn't maybe loan you out to get your games and bring you back? Or how come they wanted to do a permanent deal? Yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was a funny one, really. It was, you know, I was I was involved at Coventry, and it was always Gordon Strachan. You know, was you're part of this? You you need to earn it. But you know, Gordon Strachan saying that was not kind of how I've just said it. He was um, he was different. I was I was probably just not ready to deal with a manager like that. I think if a different manager, different circumstance, or me being a bit older, would have hit it off because he was an excellent, he was an excellent coach, excellent manager, but. I think I've never read any of his books or anything, but people have said that you know when he's gone on, he's 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 often commented on that that was his first job straight from playing, and he was too hard, and he was very hard on young players, um, and he was with us, and he never forced me out of the door, but he also wasn't somebody that would sit you down and say you know we'll send you on loan, we'll do this or or what have you. He just there's some bids in for you if you haven't if you're not man enough to deal with staying here off you go kind of thing and probably the wrong way to approach me at that time where I was emotionally and mentally um, and I was very good friends with Michael O'Neill and um, got on well with Mick and, and, and still do and he, he'd he gone up to Wigan and he'd started to see what they were doing there with Dave Whelan and things and he was all over pushing pushing them to, to come and get me and Mick was saying you know get up here and play and it'll do you good and stuff so I think I think I was sub at Anfield on the Tuesday for, for Coventry and I played against Northampton at Springfield Park on the Saturday so it was something something bizarre <laughs> like that um, I had two years left in my contract looking back I should have probably stayed and dug in there but just a bit of a conflict between me and Strachan not, not now, now I've grown up 
I totally get where he was coming from, but at the time I probably just wasn't ready for his intensity. Yeah, I think it's one of those things as well where he probably when Diva he's played in. He's treating people how he was probably treated 20, yep. 30 years beforehand. Um, and obviously, I think football has turned a little bit of a corner now and you probably treat your players differently. I mean, he would, he, he, yeah. Yeah, he would openly tell you that. He had Ferguson and Aberdeen and United. Um, yeah. And, and Strachan, what he would do is he would set up sometimes for that week and pick a young player out and he would come for that what, young lad all week in training. You know, whether you were playing well or not, he would come for you. And, you know, when I once... Had a bit of an argument with him, and Spatty called me up. He just said, "If I can't, you know, if, you, if you're going to react to that, I can't trust you at Old Trafford and Anfield and things." And that was his that was his mentality, and that's what he'd had handed down from him. And um, like I said, I, I probably just didn't have the mental strength to deal with that. I probably needed an arm round me at times to get the best out of me. And you know, it's probably I say at a young age, and that was probably how I always was. You know, even going on later on, the managers that had a bit of time for me and put their arm round me tended to get the best out of me. So. Where I was right then, and the way Strachan was, I don't think it was ever going to sort of work that. Did you have anybody to to lean on at the time? It was was there anyone you go to? No, no one at all. Same same internal thing, you know. I I train. We luckily we used to train twice a day. You know, with Strachan, we train hard. We train morning, afternoon, every day of the week. Um, if we weren't playing, and a Saturday morning if you weren't in the first team squad. But after that, it would be it would be home to an empty house. I'd bought a house on a on a sort of an estate and things and I was on my own there was a couple of lads on there a Norwegian lad uh, Tron Solvet and another lad but we never mixed and I, I would just go home to an empty house and I would deal with that myself and that that's where I think a lot of the you know the problems came I was I was thinking too much on it and I was insecure about things and no one to talk to and then you, I, I would go insular that's my character and I, I'd go insular a little bit and that's what probably led to when the bids came in, Strack and sort of put the gun to me head, and I was always going to take the sort of flight option, really. Yeah, it's funny you say that, really, because it's been quite a common theme of mm. players saying that after training, it was just close the curtains and sit in your room and caused a lot of problems. Although there's, you see a lot of this sort of not drinking culture, but a lot of this going out and, and being like teammates and stuff, it doesn't always go on like it's perceived, does it? Often it is sort of quite a lonely place. It was. I mean, at Coventry, the, the the culture was good in terms of that. It was obviously the standard. There wasn't there wasn't a big drinking culture that I knew of at Cardiff. There was. Um, I obviously had parents and family to go home to then, and I had friends that we were sharing that sort of hardships with that I that I'd grown through an apprenticeship with, and we would we would have a night out and things like that. So it was a lot easier in Cardiff to lean on people, even if I wasn't opening up. There was just that comfort of people around me that would pick me up if if things weren't going well. At Coventry, I was really sort of isolated. That was, that was definitely just train and home, empty house, train home, and that 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 was really tough. And back then, there was there was no offer of it. And like I said, the the man you'd go to if you had an issue was the manager, and he was a strong, strong character. So there was there was no how you feeling. It was it was <laughs> barking and and you know frothing at the mouth. Strack used to. Was his son there at the time, Gavin? Gavin was there. Gavin's a, Gavin's a lovely lad. Yeah, Gavin was um, like a young pro. I mean, we had sort of an under twenty ones. Even though they bought me, I'd always train with the twenty ones. And any reserve team football, Gav would be in that. Gav was a different to his dad. Quiet, sensitive lad. Nice lad, Gav. Um, but he wouldn't escape it either. His dad, his dad would give him hell as well. So that's what I was um, going to ask. <laughs> oh, yeah, he. I remember one game. <laughs> we he was 
Gav was one of the young lads that would be on the bench. It'd be sort of me and him and Willie Bowl and people like that. And um, someone's phone's gone off in the in the team talk at whatever at Anfield or somewhere. And Strax just absolutely blew his lid, and it's turned out to be Gavin's phone. And he's just said, <laughs> "Wait till you get home." He said to it. <laughs> and we're all thinking, "Yeah, it's a long night for the lad." Yeah, but um, he, yeah, he, he was he was hard on him, but he's a lovely lad. Yeah. So then, following your time at Coventry, you obviously made the move to Wigan, and another big money move. I think it was a record fee for Wigan at the time. You're still young, more pressure, but did it feel like a, a new start and something you could get stuck into? Yeah, and I suppose I'd I'd grown up a little bit with with the whole Coventry experience, so um, I was made to feel a little bit more welcome. But you know, the the, the biggest thing for me moving to Wigan was Michael O'Neill. I I knew him at Coventry, and when I moved up, he organised where I was going to live and. I moved to Lim um, in Cheshire, lived in Lim, and I lived just near Mick, and Mick and his wife, Brona, looked after me, and they'd have me around for tea, and we'd spend time, you know, going out and eating me and Mick. His, his wife would go back to Edinburgh, where he was based um, a lot, to see family. So, me, you know, that looking back at the time, it's just you and a mate having a beer and a bite to eat, but looking back, he, he was a massive, massive help for me in settling me in, and, um, you know, grateful for that, really. And, and obviously, I went there and, and played, and again, I was at the, I was probably at the top of my game with what I'd learned at Coventry. Strachan, Strachan brought me on unbelievably as a player. The, the lad that I that went there and the one that left was a completely different player. And you know, without sounding again arrogant because I'm not, anyone knows me is not. But I went and played for Wigan in League One, and I was able to do that quite comfortably. And so, therefore, I had success pretty early. Played every week, and you know, I had some I had some good friends. It was a good set of lads, and I just settled very quickly at Wigan and felt at home. The, the year you were at Coventry, um, obviously Dion Dublin was probably at the, mm. the peak of his powers. That, and I suppose both very good in the air, but both can finish as well. Was he an influence on your game at all? Yeah, Dion was a big help. I mean, Dion, I think that was when Dion was knocking in and around the England squad with Hoddle and stuff. And um, Darren Huckabee the same. I think he wasn't far off that because Coventry were doing so well and um, them two were excellent. D- D- Dion was a, a great fella and, you know, I've seen him four or five years ago and I haven't caught up with him for a long time and big hug and he is what you see Dion you know he's just a big lovable sort of guy and um, he'd always have time for you to help you and yeah he helped me work with me finishing and me aerial things and stuff and if I'm honest I was probably like I said not good enough to to remove him at that time and emotionally I wasn't up for that fight that that would be the biggest thing and um, at times I played with him and we went with two big men sometimes so I, I was you know I was technically in physically good enough to get there I'd worked hard and I got there and I was at that level for a reason and I'd earned that but I, th- I think mentally like I said and emotionally I wasn't and I look back now and you could see them players were able to do it day in day out and they had families and a support network and I think that was the big thing um, but yeah good, good man Dion top man and everybody helped me there I went like I said I went from a kid in Cardiff so raw by the time I'd left Coventry you know Gary McAllister Gordon Strachan, Dion Dublin, uh, Roland Nielsen at right back. Some of these people teaching you things and working with you and helping you with, you know, second to none, really. Yeah, I can imagine. And your, your time at Wigan was obviously a huge success. And you won the, the Football League trophy, I think, in the 98-99 season, last-minute winner against Millwall. What's that like, winning in the last minute in a, in a final like that? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I was, I mean we, played, we played there and I always just remember... A, the nervous energy that I had, and then playing on Wembley, just it, it just the game so stretched, it exhausts you, and it was a it's a hot day. I just remember being shattered, kind of thing. But 
like I said, we had a real good set of lads. It was my first probably understanding or not understanding. It was like going back to Cardiff a little bit as in there was that team spirit culture far more where Coventry was just sort of elite footballers training and playing and we had a great team spirit at Wigan, a great set of lads and we were on that crest of a wave obviously with you know Dave Whelan coming in and spending money and it was just just a good time to be at that football club and it was great. I think I think it was a big crowd, probably 60,000. I think Wigan took about ten and the rest were Millwall kind of thing. So um, it was great, good game, um, and, and we got the last minute winner and it, it, it was good. And I just sort of started to find my feet in football then, and I was I was on the time of my life really. Yeah, and as you're probably aware, um, myself, Dan, and Anta are all Tramier fans, and we're, mm. I'm, I'm 28, so I remember your time at Tramier really well. With Wigan being on that upward curve, it almost felt like a, a huge signing for Tramier. I know we would hadn't long been in the championship, but h- how did that move come about? Was it there's a rumour? I don't know how true it is that Stuart <laughs> Farlow played a big factor. Is that correct? No, I mean the biggest factor was that we we I was at Wigan and um, you know I don't know if you know of Cardiff do the Ayatollah thing. You know that. Um, tapping of the head it's some sort of just like um tribalistic thing i'll use your word there from <laughs> back, back in the day when they were trying to get a chairman out they were all banging the head like from the ayatollah humane thing going back to them days so it, it was just if if ex-players played against Cardiff, it was like you know do the ayatollah that kind of thing so oh, it's yeah. a bit, bit of a gimmicky thing they have players always did it i think they have since i've seen sort of aaron ramsey do it when he's at arsenal and you know even at that level and i made the mistake we were playing Cardiff for Wigan we were 4-0 up against Cardiff and they were getting me to do it and as a Cardiff lad I just always had that perhaps daft side of me it did the Ayatollah and the Wigan fans just took it like I, I couldn't believe really and they just they, they wanted blood for it and <laughs> honestly it just booed me for weeks then and it just got too much and Paul Jewell was like there's a couple of clubs interested in Ian and I think with what's going on it might be in your interest to leave kind of thing so as much as anything, I was a bit pushed out of the door because of my antics of, of doing the Ayatollah. Um, it did, as, it, as it happens, I was perhaps ready for a change and things. Um, but Ray Mathias was probably a big part of it. And obviously, I knew Stewie Barlow. I knew Gareth, Gareth Roberts as well. I knew Gareth from Wales. Um, so there, there were a few reasons to go. And then once... Once people know there's interest, Stewie's on the phone and Gaz is on the phone and, and Ray and people are sort of talking you around to go in. So that's what happened. Yeah, and I had a great time of it. I had a good rapport with, with the fans and, and scored a lot of goals. Loved it. Loved my time at Tramia. Probably as good a time as I had in my career. Loved, loved my time at Tramia. Good good fans, good people. You know, we had some good teams and good good lads there and, you know, got an awful lot of time for the, for the football club. I, I loved my time there and, just obviously disappointed the way it ended um, with the injury and things. But yeah, huge amount of time for, for Tranmere, as people can probably see whenever they speak to me or social media. But, you know, always want Tranmere to do well. Yeah, it felt like that has obviously a huge impact on yourself with that injury. And um, mm-hmm. also probably Tranmere's chances of going to the champ- championship. Um, and that's not just saying it because you're obviously speaking to us now, but... It really did seem to take a lot out of us over the next few seasons, and couldn't quite get back to fitness either, which was, which just killed us really. I think. Yeah, I mean, it was the year. I think the year to do it was obviously the, the year we got something silly like eighty points, didn't we? And I think we missed out yeah. on goal difference or by a point to Cardiff, and I think we'd we drew at home with them at Prenton Park a couple of weeks before the end of the season, and if we'd have just held out when we were three two up. 
the three um, all game. Yeah, yeah I think Bobby yes. Inchel got. A, did he get a hat trick? Yeah, Ernie got a hat trick. Yeah. I, I think Tyrone Loran sort of gave the ball away, but you know I wasn't for telling him he was a, he's a psycho. <laughs> so I was just like, but there were a few there were a few moments where if we'd have just got it, but I mean. 80 points any other season would have got you in and I think I think we could have gone up with that team the way I had and the way we were playing and probably missed our chance then and then the year after I think Ray got sacked quickly into the season after we'd had a bit of a sticky start but I felt we were just getting going and, and Ray got sacked after 10 games or something like that and then Brian Little came in and I never got on with Brian Little really I never, I never kind of got the guy and I had less time for him after I got injured but um, that's a different story but I yeah, that would. I feel the Ray Mathias season was the one, and I, I, that's the one that probably you know gives me most hang-ups that we didn't didn't just find a way to get in them playoffs and do it. Yeah, as you say, I think any other season it would have got you in there. There was even mm. a odd season where you would have been not too far off automatic. That, yeah, that, 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 yeah, that, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah, it definitely was a big points total, and like I said, we had a few opportunities before. Saying that's over a season, that extra point or two, you can look over the whole season. But we obviously look back on that Cardiff game and a couple of others. Yeah, and and as well as the obviously pushing for promotion, we we seem to just do really well in the the FA Cup as well, especially under um, Little. What, what, <laughs> yeah. Do you think there was a reason for that? Do you think Prenton Park's just one of them places that suited for, for cup football? Yeah, I mean, we drew with we had the. That season obviously was the the Bolton one when um, I scored the I scored the goal. Well, I might not have been the equal. I think I might have put us in front or whatever. I, I scored the goal in the Bolton game at home and then broke my leg at Brentford the week after. And then Eugene done the shirt thing and when we beat Bolton away and I just think it was a difficult place to go and play. Yeah, definitely it was a difficult place to go and play. And you know when you get Prenton Park rocking on an evening game, it's 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 an intimidating place to go and play. And we felt that and. You know, in that season, I felt we could beat anyone, and it, it was a real, it was a real good feel about the place. And I think that was probably the same. You know, in in all those days with his teams and stuff, it was a tough place to go and play. And I don't, I don't think people enjoyed it. And um, in them cup runs, anyone from a higher division would find that a real sort of challenge. And hence, hence the good cup runs. And uh, yeah, you said obviously your time's going well at Tranmere before that season with the with the leg break. Mm. Um, there's not a lot on that really. I was having a little bit of a look on your Wikipedia page and and you know a few little articles and there's not a great deal around about it. So obviously you you mentioned it was the just before the the Bolton replay game. Yeah. Just talk us through what that day was like for yourself. You know, from playing in that game against Brentford. You mentioned you've had a, a, a couple of injuries before. Was this a, a completely different one to to what you'd experienced? Yeah, it was totally different. I mean, I can laugh about it now because it's so long ago. And whenever I see Mickey Mellon, we talk about it. I say he finished my career with a bad pass, and he tells me he's my awful touchline. But um, <laughs> he, he's he slid me through, and it was a wet day. And the minute I've sort of put my foot to the ground to have the touch, a kid called Andy Frampton just came from the side, full body weight, you know, slid and just wiped me and the ball out. And it's just a, a complete snap of me tib and fib. And, um, went went to the hospital. Um, you know, it, it was like a car crash. They've likened it to the break itself. And the disappointing thing for us was Brentford didn't have their orthopedic surgeon on duty. I know we had a chap called Rob Harvey at all home games in case of something like that. We'd have got rushed off to the to the Murrayfield and got done. Um, no one at Brentford went went to sort of an NHS hospital. We had some casualty officers trying to deal with it. 
the the initial aftercare is what caused me to retire. Really, the the care I got at the hospital um, at Brentford was was poor. Not that that's a slant on the NHS or casualty, but for my career and what it was, I, I really needed to get straight to an orthopaedic surgeon to put me to sleep and, and put a big rod in it and give me every chance. And I didn't. So then there was a lot of nerve damage and blood vessel issues and different things. And I didn't get operated on then for, I went back to the Whittle, um the day after in the back of Les Paddy's car. <laughs> Would you believe it? Because <laughs> we, we couldn't get an ambulance again. All these things didn't, didn't do me any favours. So we had to get back to try and, get that operation done ASAP. So Les took me back in the back of his uh, car, went to the hospital, got it got it sort of straightened. But then the swelling and the damage was so big, I had to wait about 10 days to then operate. And I think a lot of the initial care, you know, didn't help. I think around that time, I think, I think I'm sure Dibril Cissé broke it at Blackburn or something like that around about that time. And, you know, he was operated on that evening. And it, it, it's massive for the break that it was that you get that pinned and straightened and, and put the rod in it ASAP and I didn't and I think that caused a lot of the issues when I was trying to come back from that Yeah, I remember that Gibbs he say one as well that was a, that was a, that was a shocker mm. um, I remember it not being played on, on Match of the Day I think it stops and you can't see like videos of it anymore or anything mm. like that yeah, it's a, I mean, it's 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 a horror. I mean, I led there. The pain, the pain's just it's it's a pain. And Les always laughs at me punching the floor like some WWE guy and stuff. But I I knew it was bad when I've just I didn't look at my leg and I've just I've just got my head up and I can see Alan Navarro and it may have been Alex Hay, it may have been a couple of the lads that were on the bench and they sort of half come on the pitch and they're just turning away to be sick and things and pulling all these faces. And I thought that that mustn't be too clever, like so. I I chose not to look down at it, but it was just yeah, it was one of them completely facing the wrong way kind of breaks. It was just yeah, it was a horrific break. What was that uh, what was that car ride like with Les then? Was he uh, trying to crack jokes and stuff? <laughs> Look, luckily luckily they absolutely dosed me up on morphine and anything they could get their hands on. They didn't want us to go. Obviously the, the, the A and E department were all against it. They wanted me to wait to have it done, but they wanted to plate it and do do what they would do to the average guy in the street um if he broke his leg and obviously with me trying to be a footballer we were getting advice from our surgeon, Rob Harvey, and he was just like, no, you need to get back here. You don't want to be doing that. And so in the end, we had to make a call, what we did, and Les said, listen, we'll get you dosed up, sling you in the back of the Laguna or whatever he had, and we'll get back. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, that was pretty much it. And I think I think I didn't come round to round about Arrow Park somewhere, and um, and that was about it. But yeah, I was, I, was out, I, was, I was out of it, really. But Les was fantastic, not just at the time, but afterwards he was... Um, He's a different character and a different man, but he, he he was fantastic for me in the in the year trying to come back. Yeah, there's a lot of good things says about Les Paddy, good man, isn't there? Yeah, good man, Les. Um, so you know I, those weeks coming afterwards, obviously you get we get to the the Bolton replay game, and mm. and usually Daddy scores his goal and lifts his t-shirt up. How how are you feeling then? You know, to be what I imagine is really appreciated by that squad. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a lovely touch, and I mean, Mark Trevor, the kit man, tries to take all the claim for it and stuff that he organised it. But I, I don't believe that for one minute. But um, it was good of Eugene. It was lovely. I, th- I mean, I think I was still in hospital. I think I listened to the game on the radio or the updates and stuff. I was, I was still in waiting to have the operation. I think that's how long I was in waiting. Um, so yeah, it, lovely touch. Like I said, good set of lads, and it meant the world. And at that time, I still thought I was just going to come back and and go and crack it and stuff. But when I did come back, like I said, I. I I never got on with Brian Little, even when I was fit. And then, obviously, I had less time for him because of what went on with the break and things. I, I never heard off the guy for three weeks, which 
again, we're talking also mental health, and I thought that was like outrageous from the first team manager. So, you know, when I had I had Lorraine Rogers come in, I had the groundsman, Mark Trevor, the kit man, Warwick Rimmer, all all these people, you know, would come in. Ray Mathias. So, I was disappointed in him for that, and I th- I think we never sort of really seen eye to eye, and it just got worse from there on, and um, never panned out with him really. So, when was the point where? You know, you said there you're thinking, you know, you're in the hospital bed, you're thinking, oh, I can get back to football. What was that point where you thought this might not happen? Was it the... was it from a conversation with, with Brian Little or was it was it a combination of both? He yeah, I mean, like I said, Les was fantastic. Les had me rehabbing and Les was just telling me I was gonna come back and I had all when you're coming back and you get feeling a little bit of improvement, you're convinced you're gonna come back and be what you were. Um and, and Les was brilliant in that. Didn't have a lot to do with the first team again. I think nowadays you'd probably try and include someone like that a little bit more. Um, it was very much just me and Les up at Movama with his dog and all this kind of things, and um, <laughs> we, you know, some some crazy things with Les. But he was he was a good support for me, and without him being like that, I'd have been a little bit lost. And as I was just coming back to sort of first team football, Brian Little was just there's no future for you here, which absolutely sort of took it out of me, um, just because of. I loved the club. I was desperate to come back, and you know, I th- Les. I think Les had a few words with him over that, a few choice words like Les does, because he just he just couldn't believe the timing of that really. So that took the wind out of my sails a little bit. Um, it really did, and and then they were trying to get me out, sort of on loan, and get me moved and stuff. And I think whilst the leg never recovered, I think mentally that that took an awful lot out of me. And you know, it, it, I seem to I seem to lose all my belief in coming back to the level I was a, a bit after that because I was just desperate to play for Tranmere. Was there was there much support? Obviously, you mentioned a lot of a lot of visits from like uh, club staff and, and and that was there much support mentally for you at that at that time, or was it again kind of a crack on, do it yourself? And yeah, and no, same thing. No, no, nobody was aware of speaking to you on that level. It was a, it was a crack on thing, you know. At the time, I thought that's great. They're coming in and having a chat, and like I said, some some people I'll never forget, like Warwick Rimmer and Ray Mathias wasn't at the club, and you know the groundsman, terrible forgetting his name, the little fella that used to be at the Raby, George, George, I can't remember sooner. And I, you know, I had a lot of time for people coming and doing that. The chairwoman came in, Lorraine Rogers, and there was that kind of support, and I got a, an additional year. Um, it was a much reduced contract it was an additional year and again it wasn't about the money it was about making it back but there was that level of support but nothing in terms of sitting down and chatting with what you, with what you really needed I guess but um, again I think that was just where we were at at that time So you know further down the line you, you're looking at maybe a decision to retire mm. how hard is is that decision to, to make was it because of a you know, you said it was there was still pain in there. Was it was it just purely down to the pain, or or had you kind of mentally changed when when you were trying to play the game as well? I, I think probably a bit of both, really. I think it never healed as well as it should have done. Not you know going back to what we touched on with the initial care down in London um, didn't help with that. It was a lot of sort of tissue damage and, and nerve damage and the blood flow to the area wasn't good. So the feeling, some people would say I had no feeling in that leg anyway, but. <laughs> the, the feeling wasn't great. The movement wasn't great for myself. And, you know, I had to work on being fit and things like, you know, it wasn't my game really, the, the mobility side of things. So I had to work at that. And I got super fit with Les, but I always felt I wasn't quite there. And I think a combination of 
mentally thinking, can I do it? And like I said, you know, it's it's, it's not a blame game. It really isn't. But I completely, you know, wind out of my sails with the old no future at Tranmere. So I think all them things came together and, and, and I made a call on it really with the surgeon and different things. And, 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 and I probably thought... I would be okay in a in a second career and a new life, and I had no idea how it would hit me years later. Yeah, um, what was that career that you you decided to go into? Um, <sighs> after football, I mean, when I first finished, I was just completely angry with football. I had no time for football or anything to do with it. It was just, you know, as you can imagine, I just wanted away from it, and that that probably shows that I didn't deal with it. I thought I was dealing with it. And I thought I was okay. I obviously wasn't because I missed football and I missed what it brought, but I was in denial. Um, so me and a me and a friend, uh, Gareth Griffiths, who was at Wigan, who's now with the PFA, set up a sports hospitality business, and we we had a go at that. And then I done some work with a law firm, Hillier McEwen's, who I think sponsored Tranmere now. Um, mm. Lad Steve Harvey, and we started to work with footballers. And again, it, it it was all it was all okay, but it wasn't football, and I don't think I ever was even in a position to make a success of any of them sort of businesses because I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't doing what I loved and I hadn't finished what I'd started. So I think I was just in a complete uh, blur. I was, I was, I was on cruise control without even realizing, I think. Yeah. I, I can imagine that's a, a pretty tough time. And when mm. you, when you leave the game and, and, and you retire, was the, again, was there any support from, from the PFA or, or anyone like that? We've, we've had a few, disappointing stories recently around the, that topic and how there isn't support for, for the older generation who've, who've stopped playing football naturally so no, was, no there wasn't there, there, was, there, was, there was nothing I mean you get your PFA retirement um, check which again is it's, it's, it's not a lot I mean I don't want to you know undermine it for what the amount is but it's not a lot especially I always used to think I'd had a career and I was fortunate enough I'd insured myself personally I was, I was the only one in Tranmere squad that was you know, the thought that that probably goes back to me days with Michael O'Neill who who always had me looking out for things like that. And fortunately I'd insured myself, but you know, I, I thought of young lads in our squad, if they'd have broke their leg, what the PFA gave them wouldn't have lasted them six months, you know. So I got that, but I had to I had to nag for it and push for it, which again you shouldn't be doing. And I started to use the PFA um legal team to get my um insurance payout, as you can imagine, my personal one. Lloyds weren't keen on paying me out they wanted to try not to do that and it took me two years to get it um, and I started with the PFA and their legal team were poor I had to chase them all the time so in the end I had to use my own um, I just think I mean going on from that if I can I mean a few years later on from that I realised that I wasn't in a good place and I sort of sought some counselling from the PFA and you know I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that um, luckily for me I can't. There was a there was a guy when I looked up it on I looked up online and there's a guy called Mickey Bennett, who was at Cardiff when I was a kid. I thought, thank God, I know some. You know, I know who's running that, and he got me fixed up with a with a chap in Liverpool. Um, and I had many sessions for a long time to deal with all of sort of probably losing my dad as well, um, football and everything, and and it done the, done me the world of good. And I always came back to though that I had to go and do that, and I, I found I I I suggest I'm quite bright in general life and I've got a bit of common sense and I want to done that but it was an effort and I've always sort of banged the drum to anyone that listens I think the PFA should have regional sort of mentors to go out there and touch base with current players you know past, present whatever and, and contact them because for every one of me there's another 
hundred that just won't make that call or email or text. And whilst the PFA have improved, I think there's so much more they can still do. Um, and you know, before I was full time at Staley Bridge, it's something I would have done. I, you know, I'm, I'm just talking loosely here, but why not employ an ex-player to cover an area in the northwest, fifty players, and you know, for every for every player you call that's got a happy marriage and a second career, there's a player out there that's struggling emotionally or financially that needs some help or just a coffee or just a chat. And I think the PFA, they have no excuses. They really don't. You know, the the financial, you know position they're in as a, as a union they're in no they're in no they're in no doubt for me that they can sort of put something like that in place and I think that would go a long way to sort of covering covering players like myself yeah I, I, I completely agree it sounds a very very good idea as well um, you know you get those representations in, in, in most workplaces as well so um, for unions up and down the country so why not in football why can't we have it I, there as well I just so, don't I don't think we can trust my my experience of footballers, I don't I don't think we can trust the footballer to go looking for help, even though we're far more aware and we have all these campaigns. That's fantastic, but you know, like I said, the the financial position of the PFA and what they do throw money at on some other things that are a waste of time. I think it'd be great, and you know, I would have certainly appreciated. I don't know. I spoke to a chap at the Lancashire FA when I got coaching again called Colin Green, all who I played at Wigan with, and lovely, warm, personable guy. In that time when I retired, then I'd have loved someone like him knocking on my door and having a coffee and maybe getting me to do some educational stuff and going to college and doing me coaching, which he did do. I think I think they need to be more proactive with that. Absolutely. And you mentioned you you entering into management and and getting back into football and that side of the game. Obviously, you're the manager of, of Stadium Bridge Celtic now, um, a non-league side. Uh, are they part time or full time? Part time, um, yeah, they're part time. There was what's a time that, what's, were... what's that cool. transition like? Going from being around professional clubs every single day, we're going for one goal to doing it. The Tuesday, Thursday game of a weekend. Is it better? Is it? Is it? Does it take the pressure away, or does it add a little bit more? It, it's just different. Yeah, I mean, at first it was tough because you're used to professional sort of standards, and I think you know getting used to. Uh, players, you know, having to work and balance that again mentally. After you know, balancing players that might be working all day on a building site, and they come to training and they don't want to stand around and be coached. Sometimes they want to play and be active, and it's just a different set of challenges. I mean, from when I first came in four years ago, I've done two years at Clitheroe, and I'm in the uh, two years at Staleybridge. So I've been managing for four years in non-league, and the difference now is massive. You know, it's it's far more professional in non-league, and everything's beginning to catch up, and they're trying to catch up, and I think. I think people outside and non-league are aware that players, coaches, managers can, you know, climb the ladder and, and come through that system and, and there is enough good people in there. When I played, non-league was completely frowned upon and, you know, I'd have been one of them players to frown on it. Um, but now the standards are improving and everything. It's still a challenge, but like I said, you know, facilities and improvements and what we put in place are there and I try and put some of the professional things I've learnt in place and, um we are we are, we are getting there as a, as a non-league community. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the time for non-league football. I mean, back in the day, the only time you'd ever really get to see uh, a lot of non-league players was in the FA Cup in the early rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, remember DJ Campbell? Uh, I think he played for Hayes and Yedding. Um, you know, and he he's gone on to play in the Premier League. And you know, there's been quite a few few examples of that from the from the non-league. I think um, you know. 
there seems to be a bit of a sea change where teams are looking to take that that chance on, on players now. You look at the likes of George Boyd. I think you know players like that. I think Craig McHale Smith came from from non league yeah. as well, and obviously yeah. he's back a couple of years. But there's more recent ones as well. Do you think it's something that that is because of this improvement in standards? Or do you think it's it's maybe footballs uh, professional footballs kind of just taking more risks or, or being allowed to because of more money? I think it's improvement in standards. When when I was sort of first looking, you know, to get involved in it, it was very much just just jobs for the sort of non league people. And I think whilst there was a an element of snobbery in football league and professional football, there was an also an element of denial in non league football that they needed help. So I think both of give a little bit. I I know when I first went into non league it was non league's best and we don't need pro attitudes here. We're, you know, and their cult their culture didn't want to change, you know, just as the as the pro footballers didn't want to change their attitude that somebody could come from, you know, Staley Bridge Shelter can play in the in the Football League and the Premier League. So I think both parties have given a little bit and that's imp- that that's helped enormously that we will now have teams come and look at our players. They now respect that someone like me's played in the league. So Staley Bridge have, have helped themselves and Clitheroe before then to say, well, yeah, we will have an ex-pro to come in here. So I think non-league have helped themselves and so with the Football League. And now there's a good pathway that seems to be in place. Jamie Vardy's been a big help of recent times and there's a few others you touched on. And, you know, there's definitely now that pathway and the, the sort of, you know, the structures that are in place are helping non-league players and it's given them a second chance. Absolutely. And, and just yourself as a non-league manager... Is there anyone you you kind of look to and draw your attributes from? Obviously, you mentioned Michael O'Neill there, who's who's had a really successful career, who's been a good friend of yours. Do you draw most from him, or do you, do you draw from the managers you played under? Uh, I mean, try and take you try and be yourself. You tr- obviously you, you're obviously going to be sort of uh, a, a, a product of some of these people you've worked with, whether it's players or managers, you know. So. I mean, I was lucky. I, I played at Wigan with Roberto Martinez, who's gone on to do brilliantly. He, he was a real student of the game, spoke a lot about football with, with someone like Roberto. Michael O'Neill, like you said, have played under some... For, for whilst Gordon Strachan might not have been great on the man management side, he's a great coach. So you try and take the best bits of all of them and just put also a bit of what you were as a player and what you stand for as a man into, into your management as well. So that that's what I try and do. I try and be... That's true to myself, but taking some of the better things I've learned off other people, and and and, and if I need to lean on them at times, I will do. And you, you know, your first team talk to the to the lads. What was that like? Was that a bit nerve wracking? Was it? Did you go all squeaky voiced at times, or <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you, you do. You know what? And and I I was probably guilty of this about when I was playing. I don't want to do my coaching badges, and everyone harps on about it. I don't need them, but they prepare you for that, and they do help you an awful lot. And I think. It's probably far more nerve-wracking standing in front of 40 pro footballers doing your coaching badge than it is the, the team that you're taking. But I know what you mean. It can be at times, yeah. It's challenging. Um, I, I tend to just speak sort of with emotion. And initially, I try to just speak from the heart and what I'd want and what I'd expect from a manager. And you go from there. And then you, the longer you're in it, you try and mix it up. You do different things. Sometimes you'll use you know videos. You'll speak in different ways. You'll try different lots of variations to get the best out of your team. But... I think initially when you first do it, you just you just speak from the heart really and, and try and do that. But um we're always learning, you know, and it's it's tough and you know, I've always found it tough as a player if I if I needed to pull myself together and deliver, I I kinda tended to be able to do that for myself. 
as a manager, you're so dependent on the 16. And, you know, I'm always saying, if we win, it's not just down to me. And if we lose, I think there's such high profile on managers now, like the Premier League managers and things. It's You lose a game, it's purely their fault. And it's not. It's still about the players for me. It was when I played and, you know, it is now. It's still mostly about the players and what they deliver. Absolutely. And just, you know, you've probably been in charge of a, of a few teams over the years. Have any of them gone through injuries where, you know, quite serious? You know, obviously the pitches at that level aren't, aren't the best. You know, the support isn't the best. Are you there giving an advice in those times? Are you able to, to lend your support and, and help? Um, yeah, I mean, luckily I've not had any, any injuries of that level. I, I find myself, if I'm honest, um, the most sort of man management and experience and what we're talking about here from a mental health point of view that I put on on lads really are picking up young lads that have been released and, and sort of spat out of the pro game. I get an awful lot of lads that have set their hearts on playing for, I don't know, Fleetwood, Wigan, Tranmere, Blackpool, some at Everton and bigger clubs that come down to me. They, they think, you know, their world's over and picking up the pieces of that really and, you know, encouraging some lads to, to go and get a job, maybe go back to college, to stick with it when it's not going so well, and that that that's been my sort of biggest challenge in from a, from a mental point of view, is picking up young eighteen year old boys who've been told since they're nine they're going to be Premier League superstars, and then they're completely they're completely beaten. You know, again touching on PFA and making people aware that there needs to be a better better output for the, for the lads on that respect. I get an awful lot of young players who are massively affected by being released and. I'm there to try and pick up the pieces and put them back together, but I do it from a point of view of trying to make them, you know, a better man again. Get, get, like I said, go to college, get a job. Understand you might not go back to pro football. Hopefully you do, and and piece them back together that that way. And that's been what I've enjoyed the most, and that's also been the most challenging uh, aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a lot about you know players who've who've come out the game at an early age, haven't been in an academy for. 10, 11 years since they were really young. You know, it's quite cutthroat professional football, isn't it? So, um, you know, it's good that you've got someone who's been involved in the game and in the pro game to to lean on and, and to learn from as well and say, look, well, this is football, enjoy football and, and, and probably learn a little bit more about the other sides of life as well. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's, yeah, and that's what's good about non-league. Like I said, the, in fairness to the clubs, they've been a bit more open to employ people like me. I think in our league now, there's, you know, there's myself, Curtis Woodhouse last year, there was Frank Sinclair, John Macken. So there's people there that have played, you know, at a higher level than me and, and, and done some good things that hopefully are then being around these young lads that have got they've got released and, and, and giving them some good sound advice. And they are they are massively damaged, you know, and it it it's it's a lot to put them together again. And, and you know, I had a boy at Clitheroe that came to me from he was living in Barrow and Furness, got released by Bolton and he was travelling back and forth Clitheroe two, three times a week from Barrow, which took about two and a half hours. And, you know, the the emotional side of keeping him on the right track and sometimes I have to drop him and things. And it, it's brilliant. He, he's gone from there to Chorley. And, you know, I spoke to him now and hopefully he might have a, a league, you know, league one, league two move this summer, four years on from that boy that was that was broken. And that's, that's really rewarding for me and for the lad. And if you do come down and to that level and you are willing to listen and, and, and you know, Work hard. I think he, I think he went and got a job serving teas at the train station up in Barrow, and it was all really tough for the kid emotionally to do that when he was going to be the boy wonder. But it's great to see him come through all that and and, and hopefully get back to full time football. Welcome back. I've still got Ryan. I've still got Ant. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Simon Howarth there as much as, as we in, enjoyed doing it. I thought um, I thought one thing that was interesting that Simon mentioned was talking about when he was he was struggling with his, his injuries, when he was in his recovery. That idea of him going home, maybe to an empty house, not mixing with anyone. Um, I think he talked about it specifically when he was at Coventry, um, when he was a younger player and maybe didn't didn't know anyone. And it was quite similar to, to Alex Hay and, and Roger Jones, two people that we interviewed. Ryan, I don't know if it was kind of with with Alex Hay and Roger Jones, they were they were interesting that they had such similar experiences, and then even more so again with with Simon, especially given the level that he was playing at at a Premier League club. Yeah, I was having a little think about this, and there seems to be a bit of a theme that the players in question have just come from youth team football into first team football, and, and I, I know Simon had played first team football at Cardiff, but was still very young. And what I sort of took from that is when you're 17, 18, you're probably still living with your parents and your siblings, you're mixing with your lads exactly the same age as you, who are living similar lifestyles, who probably going home to their parents or family and then going out and maybe walking the streets or riding the bikes, doing what they're doing. And then all of a sudden you're thrust into an environment where you've got, you're mixing with fellas who've got wives and kids to go home to and different pressures in their lives and don't naturally align their lifestyle with yours. Um, and not only that, you've moved away from home in, in some of those cases that you mentioned. So you're cooking for yourself, you're paying bills, you're doing something that you probably haven't trained for your whole life. You've gone from school to football to academy and you're out there by yourself. And as you say, you go home, you, you close your curtains and you sit there. And I know it sounds strange saying this because it wasn't that long ago, but 20 years ago, you still didn't have the level of sort of technology we have then. You wouldn't have been going home and putting Netflix or Sky Movies on and no. having the internet and doing all that things to that degree. You, maybe a PlayStation 2 even there. So it probably was quite a lonely place, uh, well, especially yeah. when you're dealing with an injury. Do you remember us? Do you remember us um, having a conversation about player liaison officers in, in mm. the WhatsApp group quite recently? So yeah. there are a lot of clubs now, uh, probably all clubs at the, at the top level that have player liaison officers. So their essential, their role basically is to take players that are new to the club, maybe new to the area or even new to the country, and sort of help with their transition periods into yeah. to. to finding them a house, showing them where the supermarkets are going to be, you know, introducing them to local amenities and that type of thing. And their role extends from from things like that to, to like, the stories in there about players ringing them to, to change light bulbs and things like that. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of extent to those things. Obviously, when Simon was playing, that type of thing wouldn't have been in existence. And you would imagine even today at sort of lower la- lower down levels, I, I, I don't think there's somebody who does that role at Tranmere. I mean, we spoke to to Hodgie, didn't we? He was the fitness guy, and, and it, I don't remember him mentioning that there was someone who was in that position who was basically there to try and help with players who were maybe feeling isolated. It's 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 an interesting one, really, isn't it? Because yeah. I suppose if you think about it now, for Premier League clubs particularly, they might be bringing somebody over from a different country or bringing them from a different region. And they've paid like millions and millions and millions of pounds, so they're really. Invested, you know, yeah. invest a lot of money. They're a big asset to them. So it's within their interests to ensure that they get the most out of them on the pitch. But I suppose I wonder how much they're thinking about their kind of well-being side of it outside. They're of probably football. protecting their investment to a degree, aren't they? But yeah. I think in lower league football, that stuff does happen, but it probably is just a number of duties falling under one person as opposed to it being somebody's full salary job, Yeah, which I think is probably the huge difference in there, yeah. And you you mentioned at the, at the very top of the the episode, Ryan, about 
Simon's time at Tranmere, and he was obviously a very popular popular player. He remains a very popular player today, doesn't he? Even though he mm. hasn't played for Tranmere for well over a decade, and the club is vastly different now than it was when when Simon was there. But immensely popular player at Tranmere, and it, the injury that 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 ultimately ended his career took place in a game that Tranmere played away at Brentford, and he talked about some of the aftercare that the it didn't quite go the way that it should have gone, which which led to the the sort of culmination of his playing career. But he also talked about Les Paddy. And he's, you know, he talked in glowing terms about Les Paddy. And anyone who's a Tramia fan will know full well who Les Paddy is for, for his long-term service at the club. But he equally talked about the treatment that he got from the manager at the time, which is Brian Little. Brian Little was a very experienced, very storied manager, particularly by the time he got to us. And, and I suppose looking back on, on, on that incident when we talk about the way the players are treated and player well-being. And I, I imagine it's quite it's quite shocking to hear, isn't it, that type of thing? And it, it's, it's Brian Little, given his age, is a bit of a throwback maybe to a more older school generation. And given the way Simon probably manages his own players at Staley Bridge now, you, just, you couldn't imagine that type of thing being allowed to take place these days. But maybe it still does. Yeah, I think it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? You know, Brian Little coming in at that time was... Was you need to go and get us promoted. You need to go and get us in the playoffs. This is this is what you need. You got to got to split that time and that energy across everything. How much is he going to put into to looking after someone who quite clearly can't play for him for a good year? Um, it's really difficult. That might be where the the kind of player liaison role comes into its own, really, because it, it keeps them involved in the club. It, I imagine it was it was really difficult for for Simon and, and for. For Brian Little as well to be like, well, there's no reason for for us to be be talking to each other at the moment. You know, if you, if they're not going to work, it's really difficult. Um, I do, do you think. Do, sorry, Ant, just on that, something you that's just come into my head about that. Do you remember? You remember when Ben Tollett got his really bad knee injury at Tranmere, and I feel as though the club made a really concerted effort to keep Ben Tollett very much in the the, the, the yeah. fans and the club's kind of mind. He was he did the kit launch, didn't he, even when he wasn't in technically in the squad because he wasn't yeah. wasn't wasn't recovered at that point. He was always doing little videos that were on YouTube and on Twitter and stuff, wasn't he? I wonder if maybe internally the club maybe not specifically linked to what happened with, with Simon, but maybe learn something about keeping people involved even when they're not involved, if you see what I mean. Possibly and it could just be just a natural change. You know, I think back you know, obviously that was it was early two thousands, wasn't it? Simon's injury, so yeah. you know the the game has changed vastly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's difficult to say. I mean, looking back at it now, to say that you you, you know you're not there's no place for him in the team when it's not play, even no place for you in the club, wasn't it? Yeah, when it's a play that you've spent money on, you know, I, I do find that it's a really strange thing to do, and just on a personal level, I don't think it's it's a, it's not nice, is it? Really, to be honest, it's. It's not what you want to hear, and I think Simon obviously held a quite rightly held a held a bit of a uh, you know remembered it really well, didn't he? I yeah. Would say grudge. I think he you know. Yeah, but, he didn't I, seem bitter about it, did he? Yeah. He just, but it was clearly something that had hurt him. Yeah, and, I know it and, would. And, and, it and would. yeah, it would it would clearly hurt you, Ryan. You've got your hand up again, mate. Yeah, the issue I had it was how little effort it required from Brian Little. Now I don't want to go too deep into that because obviously we haven't heard. Brian's side of things and it wouldn't be right of us to do so but in that scenario a manager or a teammate can do nothing else but show a little bit of care and they can't fix the injury they can't be expected to even repair the psychological damage 
um, not trained to do so. But the minimum they can do is check in, see if someone is okay. And that's true to life, not just football. I mean, if I had a serious injury tomorrow, I'd expect my boss to reach out. Yeah. Probably be disappointed if I didn't get some grapes and dairy milk, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, if you think of it from Simon's point of view, he's sitting there, unable to move. His mind's probably in overdrive. His career's under threat. He's in a dark place. And not even from your manager, you'd be so resentful. And you'd probably exasperate any anger or ill feeling. Now, if your manager reaches out and gives you a few reassurances, and I appreciate some of the staff did, Lorraine Rogers, Les Parry, I think some of the ground staff even turned up, which shows you how easy it is to just go check in on someone. Also shows how popular Simon probably was around the club yeah. as well, which you can well imagine, having spent that evening speaking to him, he's a very affable fella, isn't he? And you can yeah. imagine the, the, the club where people in and around the, 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 the playing staff, so as you say, the support staff and whatever it must have been. You get it all the time, don't you? Where you were injured players, say the best friend became the ground staff and the physios because you're almost cast aside. And mm. maybe the clubs who do that element better will benefit later day when... I would imagine so. Yeah, so, yeah, that, that was sad to hear that, to be honest, especially yeah. when it's your own club and you, you'd like to think you look after your own players, but you, you can't hide these things if they go on. You need to be open about them. And Simon yeah. wasn't overly bitter, but he had every right to be. Yeah, it was, It was as you say, it's sad to hear, especially when it's your own club, and particularly when we would like to think that Tranmere has a, a community club that cares about the people that are within it. And I think when we spoke to Mark and Nicola, that was certainly something that they were keen to... To, to, to have around the club, which may be why the thing with Ben Solid was was done in the way that it was done. And it was interesting, Simon was talking about suggestions of things that could be done for players in his situation. And he was talking about uh, Michael Bennett at the PFA, who we had the, the pleasure of interviewing the other day, an episode that'll be out in the next couple of months. And a lot of the suggestions that, that Simon made about things that could be put in place were the type of things that Michael was now talking about, wasn't he, in terms of there being a more sort of geographically spread national sort of um, group of therapists that were available to players. And perhaps that's where maybe the, the, the falling down might be for the, for the clubs, potentially, particularly when Simon was a player, was between the things that are available and how do you get the players to the things that are available, which is the most difficult part a lot of the time with these things, isn't it? It's it's not just about having them available, it's how do you make them accessible for players as well. And and, and I guess that's now the, the, the thing that the, the PFA and the clubs are probably looking at is, okay, that there might be stuff available for them now, so how do we make it accessible to them? I don't know if either of you had any other thoughts on Simon's interview. Well, just on the, on the I just picking up on the um, you know the, the car journey that he had back up up to yes. the middle. <laughs> it was like if you I mean like he was a League One football at the time. Yeah. So it's the third turn of English football. To think that that's a I mean back in like nineteen seventy, yes, I completely agree there probably would have been like zero care for anyone. Mm-hmm. It's go and patch yourself up and get on with it. But like to it's a League One footballer in the 21st century going in the, car, the back of a car. He's, he's just a been. Broken leg. I know. It's not like he's just been playing in a Sunday League game. Like, so what we played in a match, didn't we? Where one of the lads who in our team broke his leg. Yeah. And then in Oldham and had to, had to get driven back. He might have even driven himself back, to be honest with you. He was a bit of a mentalist, wasn't he, Foxy? But yeah. he. he um, <laughs> um, to think that he's shoved in the back of Les Parry's car and Les Parry's. I imagine all the way home, Les Parry had his disco pants on all the way <laughs> home. But, yeah, it's crazy, that, isn't it? And you think how far football has come from then to, to, to now. If you look at the overall resilience of, of the fellow as well, because 
a lot of people have stories where they were right place, right time, and things fell in line for them. Everything seemed to go wrong for Simon. I mean, he had the injury at first off at Cardiff, then he got transferred when he didn't really want to leave. He goes to Coventry and loses his dad. Then he goes to Tram, he was in the form of his life, breaks his leg, and he kind of fell out of love with football before getting back into it because it's what he loved. And I suppose about being cheesy, there's a little story there about like kind of not giving up. He's gone back to non-league, started from the bottom because he tried his hand at other things and he didn't have the same passion for them. So yeah, um, for anyone who is listening, he's had a few setbacks. I think Simon's is quite a, a heartwarming story and not giving up really. And also not, you were talking about the fact that he may have reason to feel bitter about the way that he was treated mm-hmm. when he was a Tramier and doesn't seem to have held on to that. And I think that probably has helped the way that he's been able to to, to come back into football and, and then try and use his difficult experience to help young players and, and players that, are, that are, he's coaching and managing at, at his level. Chaps, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us up there and there. Uh, and, uh, and say thank you for, for joining us as per usual. And same to you, the listener. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back again on Friday with an interview with uh, SAS Who Dares Wins star Ollie Ollerton. So that's something to, to look forward to on Friday. As usual, if you uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads. We're going to leave you now with Simon's quick fire. And we'll see you again on Friday. Thanks for listening. You, during sort of recovering from your injury, obviously yep. you have people like Ian Goodison training <laughs> at the time. Did you ever win a 50-50 with Ian Goodison? I, did, I didn't go near him to even try and win a 50-50 <laughs> with Ian Goodison. No, he, he was up there. There was, there was always some. There was a, there was a player at Wigan, Ari Andazou. We used to call him Harry. Ari Andazou. He was the same. He would just like go through. You should just stay away from him. So... I just stayed away from Ian Goodison. I'm just going to tell you a great could. fact about him now because he's got a fact about the Zayu, I think. He's, okay, a, he's a homicide detective now, isn't he? Yeah, he, he is. is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was studying all that at the time. Great player, but he trained every day of the week like it was a game and he, he would think nothing of just two-footing you in a five-a-side. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, Ian Goodison was, Ian was quite laid back, but you still know he had it in his locker. Kind of, you know, he'd be walking around with that sort of laid back Jamaican way about him, you know, whistling away, but you know he had it in him to do it. So I just how went away near him. How late would he turn up to pre-season? <laughs> oh, no one knew where he was for weeks on end. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was always tomorrow. It was him and Theo Whitmore, wasn't it? They were a bit of a double act and um, couldn't understand a word they said, them two talking together. They just didn't know what they were saying. But um, two <laughs> smashing lads, two real good lads, and Ian, obviously a club legend and sort of, you know, idol there, isn't he? But two great lads and brought something different to it. Yeah, good, nice lads. Um, Simon, you were obviously Wigan's record signing back in the day, 600 grand. How much do you think you would have been worth in today's market? <sighs> Hard one to work out that without sounding like I'm somebody, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know. It's it, yeah. I suppose I don't. Know, I suppose a little bit more. What what's the rate of inflation on it? I don't know. I mean, all I knew is once I'd got to that level, I was I was capable of probably scoring twenty goals a season in League One, and what that value would be now, I don't know. Um, I suppose you look at Sunderland with someone like Will Grigg paying that money. I don't know. You'd like to think you know you could do that kind of job definitely. Um, so I wouldn't know. But all I all I knew is I once I'd found me feet in football, you know, I was. I was capable of doing that, coming in and scoring goals and uh, I'm, I'm being a team player. 
It's too modest, Simon. I think I it, it, you put a price. I, never, I can't I never, do it. Never played a professional game of football in my life. I like to think I'm at least worth two or three mil. So <laughs> we'll go for three and a half. Then I'll just top you. If you could have played up front with anybody during your career, who would it have been? Jeez, oh, I played. What as in world football or any football? Just, uh, could, world football any? people. All right, okay. Um, I mean. Being a Welsh lad, it had probably been growing up, you know, watching someone like Ian Rush. I was lucky enough to play with some good people in Wales. Never played with Ian Rush. Um, probably someone like him would have thought on a world level. I always loved the Brazilian Ronaldo. So, I mean, to have played with him would have been something sort of special. And unfortunately, he didn't play in that yeah. Brazil game, actually. So, um, whilst a few of the others did, he didn't, which would have been an enormous honour. I thought he was I thought he was phenomenal. Did you, uh, did you get anyone shirt in that Brazil game? I've got uh, my shirt here. I think it was from Savio. I think a boy who was at Real Madrid at the time. Um, it's one of the subs that came on. I'm sure his name was Savio. I should know this, shouldn't I? Um, but yeah, I've got, I've got, I have got the shirt here somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think it was Savio. Simon, best goal you ever scored? I said, you know what? I, I always get asked this, asked this one because of the Wigan one at Wembley, which was probably, oh, wow. for, for, the, for the game it was, and... Everything about it, probably that. I think I've, at times I've probably scored some better technical ones. I can remember it like there was one at Berry for Wigan on a Tuesday night or something. It was much harder technically to do, but the, the Wigan one was the one because of where it was and it gets played all the time. And like I said, at Wembley and a big crowd. And but I'd, I'd have to say that one, yeah. So, as you know, we had Alex A on the, on the show and he told <laughs> us his, his nickname at Tramia was Shaga. Is this true? And, or is it a bit over egged? I think Alex has just named himself that, as far as I know. <laughs> That's what we thought. No one, no one else ever called him that ever. No, do you know what? It, it did stick. I think it was. I think it was between the young lads, and I'm sure one of the young lads can fill you in better than me. Um, they were, they were a good set of young kids, and it was him and Danny Harrison, Paul Linwood, and Jamie Maguire, and Paul Robinson, who, who didn't make it a really talented Geordie lad, and uh, obviously the, the obvious ones, Ryan Taylor and Alec, uh, and Ian Hume came through. So great set of young lads, a lot of good players in there as well. Um, and I'm deflecting from why he's called Shaggy now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> you'd, you'd ask one of them boys, yeah. <laughs> Too many Saturday um, nights in Birkenhead that I wasn't part of. The Ritzy, we heard a lot about. <laughs> Is that what he... Right, OK, yeah, I, I wasn't privy to any of this. Don't pretend you don't know. <laughs> we, were, we were too old. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop us now. <laughs> um. Who would you never want to follow in the changing room toilets? Gary Jones. <laughs> Big Dunk. Big Dunk was a disgrace. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Filthy man. So, yeah. Good, good, good lad. Good player. But, yeah. Absolute tramp. <laughs> you, don't even, you don't even want to know some of the antics of Gary Jones. Like, you don't. Yeah. I suppose the worst one is, like, we, we're at Wigan and um, Bruce Rioch was managing I, I didn't mind Bruce he was a bit of a school teacher but he was never a shower and screamer and somehow he's had a, he's had a go at Roy Carroll and at the end at the end of his t- Roy was always barmy anyway like Roy I say that and Roy was my drinking partner in Wigan on a Saturday night so Roy Roy, Roy was always um, a mad character and I think Bruce has had a go at Roy and it's ended up where Roy's got Bruce Rioch in a headlock and we're having to put Roy off you know I mean the guy, the job before he was at Arsenal, and we couldn't believe it. But I mean, outside of that, scuffles, usual scuffles. Sometimes the manager wouldn't come in, leave it to yourself. 
silences, but otherwise just ranting and shouting and screaming. But that was the most bizarre to see our goalie have the manager of that standing in a headlock. You know, I, 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 just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't catch my breath. And we were all just pulling Roy off him, thinking, what are you doing, Roy? Um, and poor, poor Bruce, has, Bruce has come off then. I thought he was going to do that thing. You know, when you get someone in a headlock and just rub them on the head like your uncle or dad would do when you were a kid. <laughs> no, he... Yeah, we were waiting for Roy to do that on Bruce's little bald spot. I, it was just... <laughs> it, it, at the time, it wasn't hilarious, but honest, afterwards, we were just like crying. And he came up and his glasses were all broken. He was bright red and we just couldn't believe it took place lots. Would you rather do SAS, who dares wins, or a Les Parry preseason? I tell you what, SAS all day because Le- Le- Les's was that, and I mean, I had like I said, I had a year. His, his preseasons were unreal. You couldn't you couldn't imagine it honestly, and it was just the first day back on the Whittle Way. In in the we always had a standoff. Me and Les fell out every preseason because I just would refuse to do half of it. And we were on that Whittle Way one day, and I just sat down and said, "I'm not doing anymore. <laughs> I can't take it. It's insane." So, um, but I'd get there over the six weeks. I'd get there, but we had people being sick. Tyrone collapsed, Loran, and we had to get an ambulance for him once at, at somewhere, and they were just absolutely brutal. And then I had I brought me like another year of that with Les, as you can imagine. And he used to play mind games with me, so he'd say. One day he'd say, right, it was, I was injured. Let's, let's go strawberry picking. And I think, oh, what's going on here with Leslie? So we went somewhere near Arabia and picked all these strawberries. And I'm like, what's next? No, no, take them home and enjoy it. And I'm thinking, and then the next day would be just oh, nine till five. He would, he would kill you and stuff. But he'd always be playing them mind games with you, Les. He'd be, give you a bit and take a bit back. Um, good, like I said, good man, but the toughest pre-seasons and the toughest rehab I've ever done in my life. I've just got this picture of you and Les strawberry picking, and I can't. Get over you want? To, you want? You need to. You need to get him on and ask him. We had about four punnets for eating them on the way round, and I, I, try, I try, the lads have come back and said, "What's going on? We're covered in strawberries, me and Les, and got about thirty quid's worth of strawberries." And it was just that was what he was like. And then, like I said, the next day it'd be me him and his dog at Movamma, and I'd be crawling up the thing, and it was just it. It, it was good. It was different. That was Les's way, but I've never. Never worked as hard in a preseason or a rehab as I did with Les, and I'm sure you've everyone's told you it was just brutal. People wouldn't finish, you know. People would just be dropping like like that SAS show. People would just be dropping out, and he used, to, he used to have, Les used to have a bit of a joke on who would be the first to be sick and all this kind of stuff, and it was brutal. Simon, best goal you ever scored? I said, you know what? I, I always get asked this asked this one because of the Wigan one at Wembley, which was probably oh, for for the for the game it was and. Everything about it, probably that. I think I've, at times I've probably scored some better technical ones. I can remember it like there was one at Berry for Wigan on a Tuesday night or something. It was much harder technically to do, but the, the Wigan one was the one because of where it was and it gets played all the time. And like I said, at Wembley and a big crowd. And but I'd, I'd have to say that one, yeah. 